He is our chief legal analyst, and there is never a shortage of information to discuss. And uh, he is, of course, one of the lead investigators of January 6th. You know that. Wrote the 2017 report on Charlottesville. Former federal prosecutor for the Western District. He was the U.S. attorney and uh, also was uh, the legal counsel at the University of Virginia. Dad, husband, football alum, all that. Tim Hafey is with us. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Jay. Good to see you. You too. We had a fun moment with Courtney Stewart yesterday because I'm I'm so used to rolling out your credentials and so she was trying to, and she couldn't remember them all. <laughs> she, I just said, don't worry about it. You do it every two weeks. She yeah. doesn't do it all that often. She doesn't do it. Well, it's good to see you. You so, too. All right, here we go. Let's yeah. start with the big, the, the elephant in the room is the Supreme Court has decided uh, to hear mm-hmm. the case regarding election interference and the former president. So what does, we just start with this, Tim. What is it they're actually hearing and doing with this case? Yeah, so... The president, uh, former president, has asserted, uh, Jay, that he is immune from prosecution for acts that he took uh, pursuant to his official responsibilities as president. The special counsel says, no, no person is above the law. And if the acts that you took while president are criminal, then you can be charged. Judge Chutkin, the judge assigned to this case, sided with the government and denied the immunity claim. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals similarly heard this case and resoundingly rejected that claim. Most legal analysts, me included, thought the Supreme Court would pass on this case because it really isn't close. It can't be in this country that any person has complete immunity from prosecution for criminal conduct. And again, criminal conduct as determined by a jury. This this case has to ultimately go to a jury. But the Supreme Court decided to take the case, which means they now are going to hear the appeal, the, pres- the former president is appealing the D.C. Circuit's ruling that he does not have such immunity. The Supreme Court will hear that the week of April 22nd, issue an opinion. All While this is pending, the case is stayed, which means it will not yet be scheduled for trial. That means even assuming the Supreme Court rejects the immunity claim, it won't get scheduled for trial until later in the summer or early fall. And that's bumping up pretty close to the election. So, Tim, of course, I, I will never go to law school for three years, as you did. This is why I bring you in. Uh, but I do have a question I'm sure so many people do in, in terms of, regardless of what they think of the former president and and, and taking, as best we can, extrapolating politics out of any yeah. of this. In terms of a matter of process, if a Republican or Democratic president, both of whom have been impeached, President Clinton, President Trump, if they can be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, how can there be an argument for immunity as the chief executive? Am I on yeah. the? Am I? I mean, am I saying? Am I speaking crazy? Yeah, is there no, two no, different- you're not, not crazy. That, that's actually one of the arguments that the former president's team makes is that impeachment has to be a precondition, and only if he is impeached can he be criminally prosecuted. Aha! And since here he was impeached but not convicted, in other words, the House. Or voted to impeach him, but the Senate, as the trier of fact, did not uh, find him guilty of the impeachable offenses, then he therefore has immunity. Again, no basis in the Constitution for that. They're reading into the impeachment clause some sort of gating or precondition, which has been rejected, again, by the trial judge and by the D.C. Circuit. I don't think there's any way that the Supreme Court affirms that immunity argument. It just can't be, Jay, in this country that any person, regardless of elected office, can be completely immune from criminal conduct. And, and, and all we're talking about here is, is whether or not this case should be tried, should get to a jury. He'll enjoy the presumption of innocence if it gets to a jury. But the question is, 
can he even be tried? I can't imagine the Supreme Court says, no, since this happened while he was president, he can't be tried. That just can't be the law. In terms of impartiality, the objectivity of the law, and again, um, the, these, the Supreme Court will have to adjudicate this. First of all, have they made a decision on the ballot access question before them in regard to the former president? Mm-hmm. Not yet. Okay. Now, they, they heard that argument, and mm-hmm. that is pending. We're expecting an opinion from the Supreme Court. From the arguments there, it seemed to most folks like they will essentially reject the Colorado court's decision to exclude the former president from the ballot. That is a much closer case than the immunity case, and the former president may very well be victorious in the ballot access case. The immunity case is an entirely different situation. I think there's almost no chance he wins. Where I'm going with this is, you know, you try to look at it, uh, shooting it straight, as they say, right? That he wins, you cannot restrict him from the ballot is the likely uh, outcome of the Supreme Court, which has a mixed group of justices, obviously. And then on the other side, yes, you can be on the ballot, but yes, you are able to be prosecuted in terms of this is what a lot of legal people believe will happen, but we don't know until we hear from the nine justices. That's right. Okay. That's right. I, I actually think that's the likely outcome if I had to predict. You could, you never know. It's up to these nine people. Mm-hmm. They will say, no, a state cannot unilaterally exclude him from the ballot. That has to be done by Congress. Or Section 3 of the 14th Amendment isn't self-executing. There's a pretty good basis to say, all right, you can't unilaterally exclude him. But I think they will find, again, that no person is above the law, that he can be subject to criminal charge, which will get that case back on the trial calendar, and it'll be adjudicated. The only question is timing. And I think the closer we get to the election, then the the, the, the worse it is. I think it's in everybody's interest to have those cases, that case resolved as soon as possible. I mean, if I was in your class as a law student, man, I got so many questions. Like, it, I, I think you always think of things comparatively, and it's not apples to apples, because when you hold the highest office in the world, there are some differences. You get yeah. briefed on things that, that U.S. senators and, and people do not, right. um, depending on their, their classified things you see that they cannot. So is there, in your mind, legally, or is this part of the discussion, the difference between, a say, a Senator Rob Menendez being indicted for something versus a sitting U.S. president? Is yeah. there a difference? Yeah, well, there are constitutional differences. And the... Uh, there, the senators have what's called speech and debate privilege. In the Constitution, it says that you cannot be held criminally responsible for things that are pursuant to the speech and debate of your role as a legislator. That, that applies exclusively to the legislature. So the Constitution actually does parse differences between the president and other elected officials. All of this, Jay, one mm-hmm. of the key points here is that we've not been here before, right? The Supreme Court typically follows precedent and they evaluate similar situations from the past and they're building sort of a body of law that each case sort of follows from the previous one. On these two questions, there's no precedent. We've never been here before. We've never had a former president who has attempted to been excluded from a ballot or been criminally charged. So the Supreme Court essentially is reaching this. This is like fresh set of snow in the backyard and there are no footprints and they're walking for the first time. That's what makes it even harder to predict and more difficult. Yeah, man, this is it's fascinating, but this is a pivot. Would you say this is a pivot point for our nation? Yeah. Looks personally, I think that the rule of law has to stand for something and it has to treat everybody the same. And I do think the criminal justice system, more f- people have faith in it than they do other institutions. And, and if these same facts are adjudicated in a criminal case, the same facts that I presented with the select committee 
or that journalists present, people will have more tendency to credit those facts, believe them, if they're presented in the crucible of a criminal case where there's cross-examination, presumption of innocence. It has the potential to change public opinion in a way that the same facts have not changed public opinion in other contexts. Finally, for on this subject line, Tim Hafey is with us. We're talking about Supreme Court taking up the, the immunity case of the former president. Um, Michael Fanone is a former D.C. Uh, metropolitan police officer as well as a Capitol Police officer, yeah. and I also believe a veteran of our, our, our armed forces. Um, he is has been going around the state. He was here in Charlottesville. Courtney Stewart interviewed him. The first thing I would ask you, are you familiar with Officer Fanon in terms of your investigation into yeah. January 6th? Yes. Officer Fanon was an important witness for the select committee. He was one of four officers who testified in the very first hearing that the select committee had. And Jay, he had a horrific experience on January 6th. He was out he was doing undercover drug work, and then he heard a distress call at the Capitol. He rushed there on his own with his partner and literally went right to the front line where there was a struggle over entry uh, to a basement door of the Capitol. And he was dragged out into the crowd and viciously assaulted. All this is captured on his body-worn camera. Uh, and he has been very vocal in talking about his personal lived experience at the Capitol, which, again, was very violent and very, very difficult. Tim, have you been asked about other footage in regard to January 6th? Like you and the select committee to the liberty of what you can speak to, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Have you seen everything that evidentiary we have access to of that day from all different angles? You all spent a year on this. Yeah. And and the reason I ask is that, you know, in terms of our, our public discourse, what Americans want to know is the truth, yeah. right? They want to know what happened. They, they right. want to know if they're missing something, if something's being withheld from them, you know, because people have so many different perspectives. In your role, did you see, was anything withheld from you that you could not see in regard to video footage? No, absolutely not. Look, there are over 800 cameras around the Capitol complex, both inside and outside of the building. And all those cameras are running incessantly. They're, they're there to monitor events and allow law enforcement to surge if there's a problem at a particular location. We were given all of that footage for mm. not just for January 6th, but for the days surrounding January 6th. That's a massive amount of information that we reviewed every single second of it. And we distilled from that particular moments and particular incidents that were relevant. I think all of that has now been released to journalists so that they too can view it. And, and I'm really troubled by this notion that somehow there's an argument that we, we weren't sharing everything with America or that we have created a misleading portrayal of what happened at the Capitol. Not every minute and every person was assaulting police officers. That's absolutely right. But to selectively pick out a few pieces of, of footage where there are people walking peacefully through the Capitol and suggest that it was a peaceful event, that's just straight up wrong and misleading. There were brawls at the entry points. There were thousands of people who were violent, who have been arrested and prosecuted uh, to, to selectively pick some footage of people walking around not hitting police officers and suggest that this was a First Amendment event is misinformation. Yeah. Tim, I appreciate it. Uh, there's so much that's happening. Whew. All yeah. right. We're, we're going to end on a slightly lighter note. Okay. Sort of. Judge issues an injunction on NIL. So it's right now. Yeah. You, you cannot prohibit Athletes from negotiating NIL deals as recruits. What, That's do, right. what do you think? I mean, it's just another step in the direction of straight up pay to play athletes. I, I think we are eviscerating gradually as a matter of law 
the NCAA's policy uh, reason for restricting these contracts, which is the value of amateurism and student athletes. The more that, that courts recognize that it's unlawful to prevent student athletes and universities from directly reaching contracts, which would pay those student athletes, which, which a lot of universities would like to do. Mm-hmm. The only reason we prevent that is that there's this, this policy benefit of amateurism, and that gets eviscerated the more NIL and the more uh, benefits student athletes are entitled to. So yeah. I think it's only a matter of time before the Supreme Court says, the NCAA, you can't restrict those willing contract relationships between kids and schools, and that radically changes college sports. And I mean, at this point, um, do you see an argument for that that maybe for those who are arguing for it to be changed because of the the amounts of revenue that are coming from athletics in terms of participation? Yeah, you know, it's people want to be entertained. People are more passionate about collegiate sports than they are professional sports. And there's a ton of money. That's absolutely right. I mean, the television money, and you look at what coaches get paid, and then you look at kids that used to be in my day that you got an envelope of $25 as your per diem for the day. There's a huge glaring disparity that the, the young men and women who are generating this revenue aren't getting a sufficient share of it. But, Jay, but Jay what happens is if we go to this place, not a lot of schools are going to be able to keep up, are going to be able to afford this. So you're going to end up with a small number of schools, 30 to 50, that are going to be pseudo-professional, like treating their athletes as employees, and then you're going to have everybody else. And, and I'm not sure which side of the line – University of Virginia falls upon. Yeah, it's it's, you know, you never shy away from the tough stuff, man. Well, I mean, it, 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 There's a lot of tough stuff. <laughs> it's uh, but we appreciate it. Uh, good luck to our guys at Duke tomorrow. Yeah, you know, you'd like to legislate that one. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's Tim Hafey. We'll archive it at WINA. Archive it at W